This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, how are, you, how are you enjoying the Headstuff Studios? Aren't they beautiful? Oh, I was only like, I was the last time I was here, I was in the front sort of grubby one and you had to come up like a bedside <laughs> stairs. <laughs> so I felt it's a mass improvement, isn't it? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. From Headstuff Studios, welcome to Motherfucklore, a podcast of words. Irish. Irish words. And words from Ireland. I am Dara Cochet. And I'm Padre Quivonic. And yeah, I am in, in Headstuff Studios. I'm in the podcast studios. It's amazing. We haven't been here in six months. It's great to be, great to be back, even though I myself am hovering just outside. <laughs> but it's great to actually be getting into a slight taste, taste of normalcy again. And it's great I how are you getting on on this beautiful, beautiful uh, September morning? Yeah, yeah, listen, it's it's September. We had terrible rain this morning, but we had wonderful, wonderful weather. Green, free law, her expelled by the gluck. Um, so I, uh, for all the Leaving Cert students, just to give them nightmares out there. Um, so yeah, no, look, delighted. And we have an extra special guest today. I'm really, really excited about this one. Absolutely, an extra special guest, somebody who has done great things for the promotion and and protection of the Irish language. He is none other than Monchon Magon. Monchon, fault your old. Me le buéches, pader and Thank you, Monchon. You've just written a very beautiful, a very beautiful book that I, I received recently. It's I'm I'm, I'm really I'm just bad into it. It's called Thirty Two Words for Field. This September has happens to be a very competitive month in the old book publishing world. A lot of really interesting titles coming out, but this is one obviously that I'm especially interested in. Do you want to tell us about um, this book? How, how you get where the idea came from? Yeah, so there's a few people trying to look at the Irish language from a new perspective, and like you're mm. one of the, the key figures in that. So there was what did my head in was there was sort of a paucity a paucity about what was said about the Irish language always. In other words, we used to talk it was beaten into us in school or we talked it was hard or the Mokanilach. And as you and other people started saying a few years ago, wait there, there is so much more to be said about this language than just those elements that that is political or education. And I wanted to focus on some of those things. Like I had spent about 10 years of my life just travelling the world, living in India, living in South America, living in Africa and realising that everywhere you went, people had some ancient languages. There were languages that gave you insights into other ways of seeing the world, other ways of being in nature, other ways of engaging with the other world. Um, And Irish just happens to be one of those. And we so rarely look at Irish from that perspective. So I was keen 
to to try and do that, to try and look at Irish from from a fresh angle, from the angle of it being an ancient language that was deeply rooted within the landscape, within our psyche, within our past. I remember when I was in sixth year in school, I went to an Irish school in, in, in Dublin, in Clondalkin, and in one of their many, many efforts to get us to look at the Irish language from uh, just that from that new perspective, they brought in a, a chap to, who, had, like yourself, Manchan, had travelled the world and had been all over and came in and he played a few tunes and told us a little bit about, you know, his connection to the Irish language and how important it is. But he spoke about his time in India and how he lived in an area, a place called the Punjab. And if you go back to the Indo-European roots of those words, punj and ab that that you know punj is directly related to funf the german for five and that ab has a connection with Owen, the irish for river and if you into the punjab it's five years. it was probably unmitigated bullshit but it did give <laughs> us this sort of this other perspective this idea that like having our own deep-seated language, this part of our, our sort of our, our soul and our heritage that goes that far back, it gives us that, that greater set of roots within the world and it just sort of connects us more with the world around us. And I think, is that the sort of thing that you're trying to, you're trying to instill in this? I mean, look, it's a fantastic title for a start, but it, it obviously goes deeper than just, did you know we have so many words for this? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we just, we are all a little bit lost at the moment. Like the 21st century has just been, well, even the 20th century has just been ridiculous, a pace of life and a, a new way of being in the world. And so all of us, we no longer feel rooted. We no longer really know know where we are. And so like my childhood, I was brought up in Donnybrook, but I used to spend about a quarter of the year in West Kerry in Kirkogrina Gweltacht. And that world made sense to me. So I was this very sensitive, almost almost sort of Asperger's kid, actually probably totally Asperger's kid if, if it had been diagnosed at the time. And I didn't understand the world. But I would go there and I would see my neighbours, you know, all gathering together to, to, to cut a field of grass or, or gathering the milk and then putting on them, on the, uh, on them in the milk pail and rolling it onto the back of the horse and cart and bringing it across the strand. And then the older men just sitting, watching the younger men prepare their nevog, their korach for going out to sea. And I could understand they mm. were getting fish, they'd bring it in for dinner. The others were getting grain, they'd feed the cattle and the milk. That made sense to me. And the world, all around the world, that sort of root, land-rooted world made sense to people. And, you know, the world that we were born into was an entirely different world. And we sort of feel adrift. And so by connecting back to any one of these old languages, it, sort, it certainly sort of, it brings things back to a level that is understandable again. It's reassuring. I think that's something we could all do with is a bit of reassurance in the current climate. Mm -hmm. um, this, this book is coming out as we were sitting in a global pandemic. Obviously, the genesis of it is from before then, but has, has the way we've looked at the world changed slightly in your mind in the last six months of lockdown and work from home? And, you know, you've always worked from home uh, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, have you noticed the change in the, in, in the people around you? Yeah, so... In answering that question, you know, we obviously need to be aware that COVID has really made a lot of people suffer. But, but I'm only aware of my little box and every single person I've met, every single person now has said COVID has brought improvements, have brought riches to their life, just as you said, because we're not tearing around. We're not all the time thinking of another three projects we need to do. And we are connecting to either home or those that matter to us. And we, I mean, we know every, everyone who's doing a yoga class, that's what they're trying to do again. Sit on the mat and find what, what, makes, um, what makes sense to you or go out into nature and walk or dig in the garden. And as we know now, you know, digging in the garden, it releases these, these endorphs, these in, endorphins, endorphins, yeah. endorphins, which are the it's same amount on serotonin, the same amount are released as the 
in is in Prozac, they now say, you know, by digging the garden. So we know that connecting with nature or connecting with ourselves makes sense. And it just happens that we have been gifted by our ancestors this language that is absolutely rooted in the quality of light, in the quality of wind, in the direction of the sun, in the in nature. And in some way that's difficult because if you have a if you have a language that has whatever 41 words for for different stones, it's hard if you're living in a city in a high rise to make use of those. But at the same time, if we feel that urge to reconnect with those grounder things, the Nurudi Nihula Tirula Kreula, the sort of earthy, real, earth-based things, then this can be a tool to help us. Well, it sounds like it's 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 not an abstract concept to your mind then, that it's very real. It is, because uh, look, Derek, you're the same. You're playing around with words yep. out there. I think you're playing with fire, both of you. Now, words are powerful. <laughs> you won't catch me writing one of them bukes. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, I think just that, that sort of connecting, and in many ways, it's kind of a thread between you, Manchon, and you, Derek, that like you're connecting these words back to the real world as plebs like me know it, you know, <laughs> and, trying to, and trying to give us that sense of self and belonging. Yeah, well, I'm, so I'm like totally the Pepsi to Darach's Coca-Cola. I basically <laughs> ripped off his formula, <laughs> added a bit of history and taken it And like even some of the words that I have in my book that I, you know, beautiful words that resonate so much, some of them could have been from the, some of them probably were definitely from the Irish uh, for Twitter account and some were from the Deneen Twitter account. Because, you know, in the last few years, we have all had our minds exploded by finding a Twitter word either connected by Darach or whoever the mysterious person is in behind the Deneen thing and thinking, God, that's beautiful. And so they were both inspirations for me, um, but they just happened to tie in with this idea that I had of, you know, learning other languages and living in other countries and thinking, okay, can we, um, yeah, can we use this to look at, a, uh, to go wider still? And, and like you were asking, mm-hmm. this, does this really niche you down into the real, into the nitty gritty? It both does and it doesn't. It both brings you out to realms that no comfortable person should go sanely, you know, unless they're, <laughs> they're on some sort of trip. Like, like there's a word... <clears throat> There's a word, I have a show called Iran Gazim, in which I bake sourdough bread and talk about the language. And there's a word that I talk mm-hmm. about there called shkim. And shkim means like, a, it can mean a speck of flour. And it can also mean, um, it can mean like a subatomic particle. And so same word, speck of flour, subatomic particle, or a, a speck of dust, or even dust on a mantelpiece, or whitewash on a wall. And shkim. So these are the meanings that you're going to find in a dictionary now for shkim. But a generation ago, in the old dictionaries that we're forgetting now, they say shkim is a fairy film that covers the land. Or shkim is yeah. succumbing to the supernatural world through sleep. Now, again, shkim could have been a word I stole from Darach. I'm not sure when I first got shkim. <laughs> it's <laughs> all right, because if you took it from Darach, he stole it from somewhere else. It's our language. We yeah, share it. it yeah, exactly. It's it's a, I think, yeah, yeah. If I, I took it from Father Janine, he took it from Bishop O'Brien, you know. With, <laughs> yeah, uh, and Bishop O'Brien took it from yeah. someone who, has, who didn't get to write their own book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You mentioned there uh, one of your shows, Arana Gazim, um, which I remember reading a preview of it in the Irish Times, and I was reading like this: this chap's going to, he's going to bake sourdough bread in in front of the, and that's it. That's the show. He's going to bake sourdough bread and talk about it. And I looked down and gone, that is ab- how. Oh, it's Mancon. No, he can do it. No, <laughs> definitely he can do it because I, I ran into you first um, through Gwega Tamagotchi when that came out first and that I thought that was fantastic now we discussed it a couple of weeks ago on the podcast Katie Byrne's brilliant article in the Irish Independent about Imelda May's love of the language and her tweet and her recapturing the language and how for Katie it was it was brought on partly by seeing Gwega Tamagotchi a show where you gave 
Irish words to people to treasure because they were endangered Irish words. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that show because it's absolutely just an amazing concept. Mm. And before you ask, I've forgotten the words you gave me on Radio Nalifa. I have let my Tamagotchi (laughs) die. That was always my problem. (laughs) So the the root of it came, and I I might talk in a second about this thing called uh, No Barely. You know, maybe over a decade ago I made a TV series that Gael Gorey thought was an Aegor, was a bad thing on the language. So then I tried to think that I didn't load the language. So in about 2009, I wrote a play for the Fringe called, the Fringe Theatre Festival called Broken Cree Heart Brishta. Uh, me and an actress, Eve O'Connor, we played this, these roles. And then I wrote a second play after that. Um, and Michael Mur- Willie White directed it and then Michael Murphy directed a version. And it was a bad play, God love it. I wrote it and it was just <laughs> failed twice. I acted in the first time, it was pretty awful. And then someone else, I had a great co-actor there, Roxanne Liglium. But then the second time, two really good actors played it. It's still weak- weakened. But at the end, as a sort of trope, as a, a sort of gimmick in the play, the, the actors break the fourth wall and go out into the audience and give people words and danger, dying words, words that are in risk and ask them to give to, to bring them back to life. And the play just came back to life. These poor people who were glazed over in the audience as we've all been sitting in bad plays, you know, <laughs> their eyes came alive and they all started talking among each other. And I thought, God, I've stumbled across something beautiful here. So the next year, which was probably, I don't know, maybe 2013, I brought it to on Pubble Gaelic and Electric Picnic. And again, I'd give everyone a shot of whiskey, I think, and ask them, would they take on a word and a shot of whiskey? And again, I could see it lighting up in people's eyes. So then there's an architect, Tom Dupuyer, who built the, the Polos Theatre in, um, in Galway. I got him to construct a set for me, 30 metres of raw Irish linen from Baird McNutt, the last sort of Northern Irish linen manufacturer. Northern Irish and uh, across the border in Donegal and Downings too. So 30 metres of linen, I stood in the middle of it and people wound their way in and I would give them a word. And the words were, most of them were from a book that Cush Game brought out of 4,300 words to describe someone's character in Irish. Oh. Now, most of them were negative and most of them were aimed at women <laughs> and were insults by women at other women. So, I, I, you know, I couldn't have used those and, and come out alive. Um, mm. But I tried to find the more positive words and I gave them to people and I realised people were really moved. Like, I would tell them, you know, are you willing to take on a word and you might be the last person left alive with a word that could have been spoken for two or two and a half thousand word years on this on this island? Um and they suddenly, you know, realise this is a moment. This is a symbolic sort of ritual. And it's not going to save the language, but it focuses us on what we have. That, you know, we've been in this island for 10,000 years. And we, th- those people 10,000 years ago had a whole different DNA to us. But actually, they could have spoken some of the words. Some of those words could have stayed alive and are now in Irish. Like, that's on the level of Aboriginal culture in Australia. That's not something you find in the rest of Europe. And when we focus on that, it makes people go deep and go calm. And so I'd found these people would really take on that word. Um, and some people like tattooed it on their skin. A few, two people now I did that. Other people wow. decided to call their dog at or to call and name a beer at or just, they just realized this is going to be a word. And clearly that's not going to save the language, but it's a simple ritual that, I don't know, maybe reveals more. Yeah, maybe it's not about saving the language. Maybe it's just about celebrating it while we have it. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Shkid them on. I've remembered it. Oh, Shkid them well on. Done. Which well. is Which is a slippery character. Mahal. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As, as, a, as a fellow skid them on Derek uh, <laughs> uh, have you have you saved any words recently is your CV lacking in, in, in that department 
in saving words. Yeah. <laughs> I do keep trying to find, you know, I suppose uh, earlier examples, but I suppose I didn't have maybe, I guess, the same the same connection the Monkland did to actually kind of sp- spoken Irish that much in the childhood, actually going to places where I could actually. Um, there's a beautiful part in your book when you talk about the age of the world and the age of what the age of the universe and the age of Wales and the age of kind of tracts of land. It was just a beautiful part. You talked about the actual knowledge of the that the knowledge of the history of the planet is contained in the Shanagal. Yeah, that one. Sail three veil void, sail umar avon, sail three umar, sail and down. So the life of three of three growing ridges is the life. Sail veil three veil void. The life of three whales is the life of one growing ridge. And long ago, they thought that a, a whale used to live a thousand years. You know, they actually live, I suppose, roughly a hundred years. So they thought that the whale was a thousand years. And so sail three veal vor, the life of three whales is the life of one growing ridge, 3,000 years. And definitely, like in the Cade of Fields, Professor Seamus Caulfield found cultivation ridges of potato and barley from that age. And even in, in Schlievemoor and Ackle, you can see them. You can see the famine potato ridges up in Schlievemoor. And you can also, beside it, see Bronze Age uh, growing ridges. So... Our ancestors somehow knew that they, they were 3,000 years old. And then the second part of that Chanukal, Sail Tree Vilvor, Sail Umaravon, Sail Tree Umara, Sail Landawan. The life of three Umaras, of three cultivation ridges, is the life of the world. And if a cultivation ridge is 3,000 years old, three threes is 9,000 years old. So they're saying that the, li- the, the life of the world is 9,000 years. And that's what. DNA experts and archaeologists are now saying, and geologists are saying, as long we've been here, we've been here 9,000 years. Somehow, our people kept that knowledge alive. That, like, that sends mm. shivers down my spine every time I think of it. They've encoded, they had no writing, but they knew this was something important. Now, we see it in indigenous cultures all around the world. They have the creation stories from their people, and they encode them in myth, in story, in place name, in song. We have done the same. So why don't we talk about that in school? Why don't we talk about that instead of on Mokanilach? Well, as well as. <laughs> as well as. I think the Mokanilach is unfairly maligned. Well, we would, we would talk about it if. <laughs> we would talk about it if. <laughs> uh, it, well, of course, it was an Irishman who first tried to figure out the age of the world. Go on. You know, yeah, Archbishop James Usher. Huh. He was the Church of Ireland primate of Armagh. Now, his method was uh, just as folksy, but slightly less scientific than Trivilvor, August Triumra. He counted back all the lives of all the people in the Bible, averaging for life expectancy at the time, and came up with an idea that the world was something like 5,138 years old at the time he was. So he was only off by 100 million years. Um, <laughs> but it was a good first stab. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You said earlier on, Gurb Agor A, no Berla. And I just want to go back to that. That, for some reason, I'm, I loved it, by the way. I thought no Berla was, was interesting, different, challenging, I think deliberately so. But some people... You felt it rubbed them up the wrong way or they felt it rubbed them up the wrong way? Yeah, I know I hurt people with that. So I, since 1996, I've been making Tina G or TG Carr documentaries with my brother, sort of lofty programs about about China and about South America and about Greenland. And we would, I would learn the language. I would learn whatever smattering of Arabic I needed or Mandarin. And we would go there for three months and we would come back with the six part series. It would take a year. And I, I don't know, my brother might have been paid right, but he'd pay me 800 euro, euros at the end <laughs> for the year. Like, that's all I needed. I had my straw house. I didn't need money. But um, I would just add them on my year and I'd have my 800 euros. And I thought, great, that's all. I can buy nuts and apples. Um, and so they were beautiful programs, but a small enough audience for them, tiny. From 1996 until 
for a decade, I suppose, or seven years. And then I changed to a different director from Ruan, from my brother, to Hector's director, to Brian Redden. And he, well, I came up with the idea of No Berla. And No Berla, I was living in West Kerry at the time. And it was in 2006. And the census had come out and it said a quarter of the population spoke Irish. And I knew that that was a dirty lie. Like I knew that a quarter, one in every four people don't. And it intrigued me. Why did we say we do when we don't? So I, I went to Brian, well, I went to my brother first and said, let's make a series where I'll go out and just speak Irish and see, can we catch people out, basically. <laughs> and Ruan has ethics and morals. And he said, no, you know, that's a terrible idea. But Brian and I loved the idea. So we, we used hidden cameras and we went out onto the streets in 2006 and 2007. And it was an RTE programme, but um, made broadcast on TG Cahar, just asking people, you know, words in Irish. And previous to that, all RTE programmes had gone out with their little black book of Irish speakers. And so you were able to find an Irish speaker everywhere, you know, because you, you knew who you were going to meet. So I started out in Dublin and I went into a shop selling maps on, on Camden Street. And they just told me to F off. <laughs> and then the next place I went in to block their ears. And from then, and then I went in a taxi and he told me to get out. Then I went into a pub on, off Grafton Street and uh, McDade's, <laughs> might as well. And they refused to serve me. They said, oh, there's a place for you lot in uh, under the street under the street oh, yeah, in, in Kildare Street. Street underground yeah, yeah. yeah in, Kildare, in Kildare Street at the time oh yeah it was there and um, and it was uh, it was the middle of summer and it was sort of it was sort of a dark and damp and smelly in there so I just thought I want to I want to be out among people I don't want to be in a ghetto speaking Irish so that programme first it was very controversial a lot of people tried to sue me for it um, including Anyway, uh, all sorts of different people. <laughs> and uh, soon, McDade's. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, just because people didn't like the truth so, sort of about Irish. But then when I, then the Gwaeltoch, people in the Gwaeltoch totally, the first, as soon as I went out of Dublin, people, people were fine. Like they were just, they had patience then and they were able to, they didn't have understand me, but they were able to play along with it. Two things happened. First, when I brought all that footage back into the, well, no, well, first I'll tell you. So people in the Gwaltochs were happy with that because they know that if they step outside the Gwaltoch, they won't be understood. But people, I just found some Gwaelgori in the cities, particularly in Dublin and Belfast and places, for whom Irish is a mark of identity and who say like there's great thriving Irish in Tala or in parts of Dublin or in, in Belfast. And when I showed the opposite, they thought I was taking the mickey out of them. And I probably, and so particularly when I went to talk to Trinity students in the Common Gaelach and in UCD, they were really upset. Like they thought I had attacked the language and the language didn't need another drubbing. Um, but when I looked in the footage, uh, in all the footage, we brought it to the edit suite. I could see all, using hidden cameras, all of these looks in people's eyes, me talking to them. And that was the most revealing thing. The range of emotions I saw, like fear, shame, regret, anger, hatred, love, envy, jealousy. Our feelings about this language are so, so complicated. Um, and I realised what I was doing was a bit crass for something that is so profound and, and emotional for people. Like I said, I, I liked it. I, I did because I thought it was challenging in the right way. Like I think you, you need to sometimes hold a mirror up to society. And like one of the worst and most harmful things we can do with a language that is undoubtedly under pressure is to say everything is grand. And I think it's little things like this. It's little things like like books, podcasts, programs that are broadcast to a non-Irish speaking audience or aimed at at the broader English speaking audience. That that's where your hope is. That's that's where your great white hope is. This is write a book about the thirty two words for field in the Irish language and say, look, look at what we have, and maybe you don't, maybe you could. Definitely, definitely. Hello everyone and welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. 
character actor is a supporting actor who specializes in playing unusual, interesting, or eccentric characters. For whatever reason, these performers are less concerned with being stars. Because of that, they often take supporting roles in big movies or only play leads in indie films or TV. They're less concerned with their image. They can bounce between heroes or villains. They're chameleons, and they often disappear into each role. So you might know their faces, but you might not know the names. So subscribe to us wherever you keep subscribed for podcasts and be on the lookout for that to come. And until then, uh, see you later, cinephiles. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I think the, the, the idea of, of having a space of, of being able to talk about Irish in, to, I guess, to an, an English-speaking audience is something that has a place as long as it's not taking space away from, I guess, those those actual, those Irish, pure Irish language contexts which need to exist. I think the, I know that it's, it's a conversation we keep having is the idea that at the, the entire, the, the corpus of Irish kind of broadcasting, publishing, all these things, it shouldn't, everything shouldn't have to be pitched at learners or pitched to beginners and there should be somewhere to go once you have learnt. And uh, I do, I do get that, but I think what, um, what Malkan's doing and what, I, what I'm doing, I think it's, it's not, I don't believe it is actually taking that space away. I'd like to think that it's, um, we're giving an opportunity for, for some of the, for some of the other great content to, to actually be found. Yeah, and sure, look, if you want pure Irish language content, sure, we have a great thing coming up for fans of retired politicians on trains. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen, have you seen this no. RTE's flagship Irish language programme for the autumn is going to be Enda Kenny taking the train no yeah yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. they couldn't find anyone else who spoke Irish and wanted a job in television apparently <laughs> ow okay <laughs> okay no comment <laughs> oh. but I think in a world where our mainstream broadcaster has less than 1% of its content in Irish mm-hmm. um, it's increasingly challenging to carve out that niche for Irish language content. You've you've done both. You've written in Irish. You've written in English. You, you've you've performed in both. What are the challenges that are associated with trying to get something out there that's that's in Irish? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's almost as like Derek was saying. What I want, I want them to be in Irish, and I want them to be understandable to English speakers because I see, yeah, as you see, as, again, as Derek said, that's the area that isn't being served so much. There is a there is enormous amount of people, both in Ireland and uh, around the world, who are very interested in Irish and want to be encouraged to learn more and want to have further access to it. And I just think, why don't we support those people? In fact, the whole world is, you know, the world is interested in minority languages and the perspectives they give you. So the whole thing is to find novel ways of talking about one language, but doing it in another. And that, the first play I did, I had I wrote that first. I'd never written a play before, and I, I'd never even written anything. But I was in the theatre once in the Project Arts Centre watching Alwyn Fouere play La Femme qui se cogne, or something, The Woman Who Walks Into Doors, Roddy Doyle's movie in French. And we're in the Project Arts Centre, and she's doing this one-woman show in French, and the subtitles above, or above surtitles or whatever, above the <laughs> But this is the Project Arts Centre. It's a theatre audience. So no one can pretend they don't have fluent French, you know? So everyone was staring right at Alwyn. No, <laughs> darting our eyes up a bit, but just looking at Alwyn. So I was doing the same and I didn't really understand Alwyn. But I mean, I didn't understand 100% of it. But staring at Alwyn, you know, I could understand what was happening. I was totally gripped by this story about this woman, you know, that Jerry Ryan played in the, in mm. the movie before that, who was just fighting against everything, protecting her people and had real difficulty from, from an abusive husband. Um, and I left that theatre, we don't need to understand the language. 
And again, that's what Jack Lecoq said, the great mime theatre artist who taught Michael Murphy and all our greatest practitioners of physical theatre now. What he said that it's about theatre is um, is like, is it 70% physical or 80, 75 or 80%? I always hear different amounts. It's a tiny amount is, is language. So we can convey these things. So I thought, okay, I want to write a play that's in Irish, but that's understandable to Bear Laurie. And I thought, how is I going to do this? And so that first play I wrote called Broken Cree Heart Brishta, I set it in an Irish language class and I had no money so I was the teacher and as I said I'm a god awful actor and Eve O'Connor <laughs> this amazing young actress she was 18 at the time played the student and uh, it turned out she was my yeah so she was so the audience were learning the words in the class uh, the words that they needed to understand the drama that was happening during the course of the play and and it worked somehow and you know there's a million ways we can play cleverly with two languages. It's what, it's what, that's what Creole, that's the idea of. People are doing this all over the world, mixing and matching different languages, using different visual inputs. So it's just ripe. It is ripe with the new technology to start playing games with all sorts of languages and all sorts of tones. And it just, it adds a, it, it adds a game, you know? Like the second play I wrote, the bad play, then Boss Tongue, then I rewrote it as Foss, as Fuckle focal point or focal point um, where it wasn't much better but um, <laughs> in that one I was a lecturer uh, the first time around uh, sort of one of the great Gaelic lecturers you know uh, from professors or something desperately trying to convey to an audience at his retirement party or something how important the language was to him but everything else was revealed about his past and again he's using Irish to do it but actually everything else is re revealed either through, through technology so there's a million ways we can start playing with this language and mixing it it need not be just for Gwelgory or just for Bearlaw it just uses our creativity. I like that. That's good. I like that. That second play, that was the one with Roxana and Acclaim. Exactly. Yeah, she's amazing. And what she's That's doing fantastic. now with, like, you know, with what is slam poetry yeah. and the roots of slam poetry and then, what, an ogle of Berta. Like, mm. we had slam poetry whatever, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, maybe a thousand. I don't know how back, how far back the Agal um, of Berta as a concept goes. But we we have it in our culture, so why not? Uh, it's one of the things that always strikes me at Arachtas and Sauna every year. And unfortunately, there won't be an Arachtas and Sauna in the same way this year, thanks to COVID. But to see people from the ages of six to 60 and more doing Lubini, Agasagal of Berta, and like, there's no difference between this and a rap battle. No there, no. there isn't. Like, you know, what are the rules? It has to rhyme. It has to have a beat. And it has to be funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, great. Off you go, lads. And like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to see lads from, lads from Connemara, 65, 70 years of age, taking home a prize for the same thing Eminem is doing in Detroit. Like, you know, it's it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. But and tell yeah, me, tell, I don't know what Lubini is to my shame. Tell me what that is. I think an Agalev Berta is uh, prose and a Lubin has a tune. Huh. But it's essentially the same thing. It's two people uh, doing a funny play that rhymes. And it's, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. I love them. And, and one of the great things about technology is you can go onto YouTube and you can look at last year's winners and it's fantastic. It's great. It's absolutely brilliant. I did the Agla Berta in Sloga when I was in school and obviously as a 15, 16 year old, no idea of the historic connection to this. For me, it was a way to get off classes. You know, I could go and I could, I could <laughs> pretend to be practicing my Ogle of Berta uh, and myself and my pal Darren Wailea would just skip off and just we'd pretend to learn the Ogle of Berta. But then, unfortunately, we were pretty good at it. So we had to go through to the, the national finals. Uh, but yeah, no idea the connection that that has to the, the poetic, just the, 
the, the corpus that's there, like all, all the work that's there. And I suppose it all ties into the concept of all this stuff that we have that we don't know. You know, we don't know about our, our 32 words for field or all these different words for the sea in various different states, which, of course, and it's so reflexive and it's so reactive to what's going around us. And, you know, most of us are just happily plodding away, uh, you know, without any clue as to what's around us and, yeah. and, and what we could be using to describe what's around us. Totally, totally. Yeah. There's been something I know we had, um, we, we, we did an episode about over a year ago about Te Reo, the Maori language. Mm. And one of the things that they've been doing there is they've been, I guess they've been um, deliberately using some of the, some traditional words to describe new technologies. I think the word for, the Te Reo word for a car is uh, literally translated as land canoe. Huh. And for electrical cables, they use the word for a fishing line and the word for a lightning uh, to use those, to use electrical cables. Right. And I know this is something because there's, um, there's often kind of this ongoing kind of a battle that that often among people who don't speak Irish but are kind of witnesses to it, look at looking at where the translation, thinking, oh, that that word looks a bit too much like the English word. And on one level, if they're not interested in Irish, it's none of their business. But on the other level, I suppose there is something to be said for using kind of a new terminology as an, as an opportunity to re to re cherish those old words. I remember going down to Corcovina years ago and um, one woman, I won't name her uh, to spare the guilty, uh, she said to me <laughs> like, uh, Rohar, would you fuck off with your Rohar? Vina bicycle here at Corcovina, Reeve, Riven, Rohar. What's a Rohar? We always had bicycle here in Corcovina. <laughs> so there is this like, you have to sort of delicately parse the difference between common usage and this sort of, no, we need to have a more Gaelic sounding version of that. <laughs> And you know, yeah, it's it's a challenge. You yeah. know, I leave it to use wordsmiths to be sorting that out. The real challenge is for us to understand the mindset. So, if we go to lessons in Grail Talk or Grail Inn or Conan we can get the words, but to to get the concept, like even just the Boyne River. So, the Boyne River, you know, the the second greatest river in Ireland, the most the river most connected with mythology. Maybe the second river most mm. connected with mythology. It's when you know the Irish is Boeing, and Boeing is a mother goddess. And then we look at that goddess is what she's nourishing her people. So she's a cow goddess in in old sort of Celtic Celtic lore, um, nourishing her people like a cow from the udders. And her people come to both sides of the water, just like happened in the Nile. They come down, they get nourished, and they they create. Um, settlements there, just like what happened with the Boyne. This mother goddess he, he nourished her people, and um, then you know, and that Boyne, the Boyne, the, the goddess is the same goddess Govinda, as the god in 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 Hindu culture, the same Sanskrit roots. And Bo is obviously the same Boyne, Bo, the cow god, and Go is the Sanskrit for cow, Govinda, the cow finder. So we have these two mother goddesses. Um, in, in both parts of the world connected and then we go with that Boyne River and it, it was thought that it reflected it was so potent so sacred so magical that at night it reflected up into the night sky and was mirrored there such were the potency of the god and then that river became the Milky Way that was a reflection of the Boyne River and so that's obviously Balach Nabo Finna so suddenly one word takes us from cow mm. this a uh, beast that we brought with us, that the first Bronze Age farmers brought with them, whatever, seven, eight thousand years ago, which we worshipped because it gave us all its food. And then we connected that with the, the, the Milky Way. And, you know, it was even thought that some of those passage tombs and, and monuments on the side of the Boyne were reflections of star systems above. So you have the Boyne River, the mother goddess reflecting up in the sky. You have the stars reflecting down, being reflected down and mirrored in these, in these ring passage tombs. Like... 
that is a lot to take in for one word. So it's to understand the mindset, this vast, wide, um, yeah, Weltanschauung or worldview that came with came with every word, and that takes more than a than a Duolingo app to learn. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, mm. look, it, that's all well and good, but I refuse to subscribe to a creation myth that places any importance on the existence of Navin. I'd be paid by the IFA actually, to say all this pro board being nonsense. God, we had we had Marty Mukanomura talking about butter and milk in a couple of years ago for. Uh, an hour that was uh, <laughs> I think Board B I got their money's worth um, yeah that sort of that etymology or not just etymology but that, that, that sort of connection between mm. etymologies that shows a connection you mentioned earlier on the Nivok the, the West Kerry word for Kurok because it's not a Kurok and you'd get funny looks if you called it yeah, a Kurok yeah. and Kurkagina but the Nivok and that it, it's connected to the word navigation yeah. the Latin you know Sanctus Brandani Navigatus right. of course who left from North Kerry mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's an incredibly sexualized statue of St. Brendan in Kerry I don't know if you've ever seen it no in course yeah, it? yeah, yeah in this, no it's it's on, on the North Kerry coast anyway okay. up there um, yeah it's it's. I mean put, put it this way St. Brendan's looking well statue <laughs> you know what I mean he's half naked flexing his biceps about to get in the boat but just that connection, that mm-hmm. connection of of that spirit and language and 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 self, and it's just, it's very naked when it's just there on a page. You know, when you start to go into these things, mm-hmm. and like I I have grown up with the term Balach Nabofina, and I know that like Bowen is the cow goddess, but that that connection just hits home when you mm-hmm. say it, and it's there. And there's probably quite you know, there's very few of us, very very few of us who are still aware of these connections. Mm-hmm. And I, in a sense, it seems that you've gone from saving words to sort of saving what the words are connected to and what they mean and sort of passing that on to people in the hopes that they'll they'll bring that forward into the world. Yeah, only because it's been so strengthening for me. Like, you know, I was, as I said, this lost dreamer. I built this straw bale house in 97 down West Mead, built my, my woodland and all to save myself from from ending up in St. Pat's. And I really didn't mind if I ended up in St. Pat's. That was okay. But I just knew if you ha- my sort of person, this sort of idealist who grows his vegetables in the garden and doesn't have friends in school, we're very happy, you know. But then we come 18 or 17 and your school tells you, you're now going to join the world. You're now going to get a job. You're going to get a mortgage. And massive depression came down upon me. And I realized I won't survive. I cannot survive in that, in that normal world. And so that's why I fled to all those places around the world. D- did appalling, really dangerous things in African South American in, in, in wherever else in India just trying to make sense of the world finally I came home I realised I saw too many other broken people like me you know in, in stranded in different countries and I realised I need to work my rubbish out my mess out at home I bought myself 10 acres dirt cheap land and just started growing veg and putting this house of bales of straw because I'd seen people all around the world do the same and I was petrified you know I didn't know how to build I'm a rubbish I'm rubbish in my hands but I knew I needed shelter I needed to find a way of working and you try all the things you try I didn't I never tried chemicals I never tried even loosen you know um, recreational drugs are I avoided if I could psychiatric drugs but you know a bit of meditation or breathing would try but none of it really worked and, and it seemed weird to be taking on you know uh, yoga terms but even when I came across a concept like like counter and altar so counter you know is such a common word this district the region the place and there was the opposite in our understanding in the old Irish psyche of the capsule counter was altar counter is this place this region altar is the other place the other world and there was always only a thin veil between counter and altar 
And there were some people mm-hmm. who could step from one to the other, from counter to altar. And, and you can see that in a word like Pukin. You know, Pukin is the, in, the invisibility cloak or the powerful mantle that can uh, help otherworldly beings appear in this world unseen. And I thought, okay, so yes, I'm stuck in this world and I find it depressing, but just by breathing, I can imagine there's an altar. I can even put some myself into altar. And it kept me sane. So, I, I mean, I owe it so much. I, you know, it's not political uh, for me and it's not, there's no other agenda. It's not educational. I just found this help make sense of the world for me. So, if you want to put on your pookine and slip <laughs> into another world. The book is called 32 Words for Field. Exactly. Available in all good bookshops now. Manchan Magan, Gramila Mila Magat. Mila Bech, Mila Bechas. Gramila Magat, Magan, thank you so much for joining us today. And 32 Words for Field, published by Guild Books, available, widely available, all good bookstores. And I mean, I think there's an ebook too, but the production, the actual book itself is so beautifully produced. It's. Yeah. The artwork, well, the artwork is stunning. Actually, you want to just hold in your hand. before we before we do let you go, Manchon, the the artwork, the mountains and the the fields on the front. Who who did that? Uh, this, this artist, Steve Dugan, or Steve. So he he first, I all the chapters are like about three pages in length because I just fall asleep when I'm reading, so they're all very <laughs> short. So poor poor Steve Dugan had to do so many woodcuts for each chapter, and he did them of like oh, just cap, which is a word for the wood that an anvil goes on, or another one for dairy milk or club milks, which the the food that the Blasket Islanders used to give me one of their ex Blasket Islanders when I go to the house. So he just did this gorgeous job of woodcuts and then a beautiful one on the front cover that shows all the different types of fields that did exist in the landscape before the, the supernatural agricultural industrial mono fields came along in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. It's stunning. It's well worth picking up a copy. Um, although if you if you insist on an ebook, go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so until the next time. It's a slant from me. Like a slant, aren't you? Mind yourselves. Motherfuckler comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. You can reach out, contact the podcast at motherfuckler at headstuff.org. Also, we have a Patreon if you want to support the ongoing work of the podcast and get in more amazing guests like Mankind McGann today. It's patreon.com forward slash Daruk. Otherwise, we'll see you next Friday. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Dark. I've never had one of my, an article, one of my books in the sun before. Ah, <laughs> the sun, oh my.